Hello and welcome to this Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. Joining me today is Matt Oxley, MotoGP journalist and TT winner, and of course, Freddie Spencer, three-time world champion. We're going to look back on the MotoGP from Silverstone. I know Matt, you were there, and Freddie, you were on the continent on cafe races and... Yeah, I was having a classic event in Switzerland, so I, I unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, I love <coughs> being at the Swiss event, and I would like to be at the British Grand Prix too, but... Yeah, summer's a busy time. You can't be everywhere. No, that's you the can't. That's the problem. Absolutely it's not not. Summer isn't yes. long enough. Is but a, a good race, although one person on the comments on the website has said processional, which isn't something we normally say about MotoGP. So was it a good race? Was it not a good race? I think it was an excellent race. You, you, I think processional would be very much the wrong word to... <laughs> to uh, call it. I mean, a processional race, I would say, is when you've got like a, a second or two between each rider and you know nothing is going to happen like that. But at Silverstone, they were all on each other's rear wheel. Any of those guys, so the tension was high. There wasn't that many overtakes, but the tension was very high because any guy had made the tiniest mistake, that's it, he would have lost position. And they were all, you know, every corner you thought, is so-and-so going to have a go here, is so-and-so. So to me, that's not processional, it's high tension. I understand why that the comment was made because it, it gave the impression with Valentino getting out in front, he pretty much, he, he was just what that half second or second and he, he kind of managed that. And this, the, the Silverstone circuit, the modern configuration, because of the speed and the way the sections are laid out and, and we ran there a few weeks ago, you know, during the classic event, it it is somewhat one line through certain parts of it, and the speed they're going, it, it, would, it would definitely give that impression that it would be difficult. There's, there's just a few places where I think the guys um, can make passes. And, but the battle behind was certainly interesting. Um, I think you, when you have with Maverick and Dovey and with Mark, you could see Mark was struggling a little bit with trying to maintain the pace that Valentina was running. Um, but there was something going on, so I agree. I don't think yeah, it was exact yeah. processional, yeah, I mean, but I think that that race and the way the track is configured and the way it kind of went along with Valentino dominating those first one um, pretty much till two laps to go. Yeah, I mean, and and the thing about Valentino is we know that you know his problem is coming later in the race. Yes. So, he, so he's bolted from the start. Of course. And if you yes. know what's been going on, you're right. Right. Well, how long can he keep this going? And how long? How long before the guys start catching yes. him? And then, of course, they do start catching him. So, so there was a story all the way through it. It wasn't yeah. just them all just following around, you know. And I, I, I think, um, I mean, I love, I love Silverstone. I love the old layout that Freddie would have ridden back in the 80s and I, and I like the to me it's one of the great circuits and I, I know it's not that great if you're watching by trackside but um to me it's up there with Phillip Island and Mugello it's, it's very fast very challenging it's the only place I've ever heard Marquez say he was scared yes a couple of years ago after one practice session it was a bit windy and if Mark, Mark you know I I, I kind of want the riders to be scared I want them to be living on the edge. Yeah. To me, that's their job, you know, and sure. I don't want them, I don't really want to see them riding around second gear corners and first gear corners. I want to see them fighting to stay in control around sort of 100, you know, through really fast corners. And yes. there's, there's a very good combination of corners at Silverstone, I think. What makes it really tricky too, and it's actually one of the things that, that probably I would, I would say is my least favorite part about the new configuration, and, and again, it's not about old or new for me, is 
the fast sections and it's such a dramatic change to the slower part. And I think that's where, you know, the riders, like you said, it keeps you on your toes though, which is, which is a good thing, you know, and it forces the riders to really be precise, especially that first, you know, the first the, in, in of the S sections, you know, um, to where you, as a rider, you, you, because it's so wide and you want to use more of the racetrack, but, it, but there's, it's at a cost because if you misjudge it just a little bit, it really throws you off in the next really slow, maybe right, left, like I said, leading on to, um, leading on to hangar straight. Yeah, when they so it's, it is very challenging. When, they, when they first made that left after Stowe, so you got the hangar straight. When I was young, I, that's where I always used to watch at Stowe because I used to love the guys watching them coming down hang a straight drafting each other and then popping right. out of the draft trying to outbreak each other into stone so you've got that's a lovely section and then and then you go down to that downhill really slow chicane and and i kind of thought oh this is horrible but i actually so enjoy watching riders going in there because whoa i mean you, you you're going down steep downhill yes. with the back wheel in the air trying to stop from you know whatever speed to almost nothing and that you know, and you've been traveling at over 150 miles an hour for the previous 30 seconds. Yes. So, so trying to work out your braking markers and so on from there is a, is a real challenge. And and in in the race on Sunday, you saw Mark going in there with his foot properly on the ground, yes. smoking, you know, rubber smoke pouring off off his uh, boot, off his boot. And that's the kind of you know that makes me I enjy that. Yes, and, and that's what I was saying. It's that it's it's that dramatic change in, in speed and and uh, because and again it the the track is so wide. Um, as a rider, I always found that one of the most challenging things when you go to a high speed circuit, um, especially if it, there's a lot of width to it, because choosing the the right line and trajectory through the corner is one of the things we were talking earlier off camera about that makes bike racing and motorcycle racing very particular, very entertaining and what people like about it is is the challenge of and what the rider, the input and the rider's uh, part in in making a difference. And again, a track like Silverstone, um, you can see that um, it really challenges the rider in that way. And, and when they put in, as, as Mark did in qualifying, you know, the lap that he did, um, after what, what had happened in, in his high side, you know, it really, it really, sh he's earning it and he's working for it and he's really forcing him to really be precise. And, and I, I like that. I like tracks that are, that are very technical and reward risk, but re mainly reward the precision and, and thinking and really thinking ahead and preparing for, for what's coming up. So yeah, who does I, it, sorry, so go on. Who's the suit best on the grid, do you think? Who's, who's the best suited to Silverstone? Marquez or? Cause it yeah, I, I think it, because I think the reason why that Silverstone, I think, is such a challenge for Mark is because he's so aggressive. And it is a track that will penalize you for that aggression. And, and, and not just in, the, from, I'm not talking about from a dangerous standpoint, but penalize as far as it really shows up when you make a mistake. Um, that's what I think was so positive about Valentino's performance you know he's always every week the challenge for him is trying to stay there and to move forward and staying in the hunt and all that and and he and he knows you know that it's really a great accomplishment but that track um rewards that precision yeah and I mean if you think of the the first section after cops you know maggots and beckett's it's just it's a really weird sort of section they're sort of flip-flopping 
from side to side and you, you know you you cannot well you've got to be aggressive you're always aggressive yeah but man you've got to really tame that aggression and keep your rolling speed if you it's not a kind of stop and go track no. where you can just stick all. it in there mm. tuck the front skid the bike around and come exactly. out of the corner exactly which, which is what Mark is really Which good at. Which is what Mark is really um, good at. He's good at changing that. You know, we saw him at previous races. Every every corner, pretty much, he's losing mm -hmm. the front. And we saw a bit of that at Silverstone, but not so much. More at the slow corners. You know, those fast corners, like you say, you, you, you cannot push over the limit. You've no. got to be just spot on. And, and the fact that if you lose the rear too much... The thing is, it scrubs off too much speed. Using the rear tire in direction change, which Mark is very good at, and he gets that from his dirt, you know, dirt track and riding, and he's got good bike control. It, it certainly, what it does, it allows you to, to get rotate around that front and get the bike in a position to where you can accelerate. But in there, those corners, it's about carrying speed. And so if you do it too much, then it kills the speed, and you actually hurt your momentum, and then you're trying to accelerate to that next point, and so it's a lot of a lot of that, and, and a lot of the start and stop, and and uh, so that's why when when Mark goes well, he's really working hard to kind of work around some of his natural tendencies that he that he does in his way he rides and, the and, bike. And there's no doubt he was. Uh, I mean, his crash on Friday was huge. Yes. I mean, Cal was a few hundred meters behind him, and he said he'd kind of looked up and thought, "What's that?" something flying through the sky you know yeah. and, it, and it was mark you know he yeah. went up that high and and uh you know he said he was hurting on saturday morning and if mark said he was hurting he was hurting you know yes. um so yeah you know what can you say about mark but i mean uh, valentino you know talking about ca carrying corner speed the yamaha has always been good at that it's a big fast open track so apart from the slow corners um so i think that probably did help but I think the big thing with Valentino and with Maverick was the work they'd done at Mizano Absolutely, the weekend before. Yes, and, yes. and I mean, I'm sure that wasn't just at Mizano. I'm sure Yamaha and, and, and all the data guys have been working on that. You know, this is a, the rear tire degradation thing is a thing they've had since last year. Yes. Well, since the Michelins came in. You know, they had the bike spot on for the Bridgestones. Mm -hmm. And they probably struggled probably more than anyone, I think, more of the big factories to get the bike adapted to the Michelins. And they brought out a new frame to, for this year to decreased rear tire degradation that didn't work what well, it did in some ways not in others so they brought in another one and that still didn't seem to work and and now i think they've kind of zeroed in and saying what the, what the problem is is electronics and yes this is the way we this is the only way we're going to save that rear tire is well the thing is is that if you we, the electronics can only do so much i mean the electronics basically is if you i mean it can it can do a great deal it can help the rider as far as the way they, they use the throttle, it certainly is, is pinpoint as far as certain RPM and a certain corner, certain throttle position, all of that. But they still want to try to have as much power as possible. And, and if you manage, if your whole focus is, is just on trying to maintain the tire wear, then you're kind of in a position where the, where the electronics are actually interfering then with the performance. Or, or being in a position. I think the positive thing over the weekend was, was the risk that Maverick took by running the soft rear tire. And, and, you know, we can talk about the Michelins as far as the soft, medium, and hard. There's not a whole lot of difference in that. I think the biggest, the biggest issue with Michelin is the fact of its, its working range, the, the range that it works in as far as 
um, setup-wise. I think also the temperature range that it works in. And also the forgiveness factor, you know, the, 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 the fact that it is a tire that, you know, a rider gets, okay, this is where that edge is, and then all of a sudden they're down. And, and that, but that's always been a characteristic, characteristic of the Michelin uh, tires is, is a lot of grip, especially in the rear, uh, which is a lot of, because of all that edge grip and side grip, all throttle grip, I call it, where as you turn into a corner and before you really begin to accelerate, it's got a lot of rear grip, which has a tendency to keep pushing the front, which you see that's where a lot of the, the riders um, are having trouble with that front. They're having to run a, a harder front, which is something that has always been the case, I, same even in my era. But it challenges the riders too, which is we were talking about is that it really forces the rider to have to stay on top of that and I think it makes them better. It forces the teams to have to work to, you know, from looking at it from that standpoint, I think it, it certainly makes it more interesting. It's certainly a lot, lot more unpredictable, you yeah. know. Yeah, I, I like seeing, I like seeing the riders having to think. Yes. Some people are saying, oh, well, if they're having to look, work on time management, then that's more like F1. Well, it's, it's not, this is different. That's right. This is the way it used to be when, you know, what, what many of us call the golden era. Uh, you know, the rider has to think about the tires and how he's gonna use the tire throughout the race, how he's gonna use it in the first third of the race, how he's gonna use it in the middle, how he's gonna use it at the end, at the end how he's gonna adapt his body position, uh, how he's gonna change the way he uses the throttle, you know, just trying to get the best out of that tire. So that rider, you know, he. He's not going flat out from start to finish. He's thinking all the time, and he's right. got his plan. He's got it. Now obviously, the main, you know, the obvious game plan is to have enough grip at the end to, to be able to attack or, or break away or whatever you need to do. But um, I think it's wonderful that they're having to do that. You know, I, I, I really like watching them. And obviously, we saw Rossi just trying to make a break. Yes. And he obviously thought, you know, if he could make a break like Maverick did last year, and everybody else just got caught up fighting over each other, then he might be able to do it. That's right. Know? And it, it nearly worked. It did. You know, he it was did. only three laps off it. It nearly worked, and, yes. and he only finished. I mean, people say, oh, you know, he got beaten and everything. Wow, he was, what, 0.6 of a second off to visit us at the yeah, end? Yeah, like I mean. 0.7 or something. But that, the thing is, I think also we were talking, the fact that he was, he was maybe waiting to see what was going to happen if, if the pace slowed down. Or that, or he had to slow down the pace because he was losing that, that edge grip. You know, the thing is, is that obviously, and I, I've won Grand Prix's last lap before with no, no edge grip, basically no brakes or anything. But the reality is obviously I had enough. The key was is I trusted it. And that's what I think positive, and we'll see with Maverick, I think, in the next few races, is he did choose the soft tire for the race. He goes out, and he didn't know how long it was going to last. But he had something left for the end. He almost won the race. You know, he had that when Mark blew the engine, that allowed Dovey and, and Valentino to get just a little bit of a gap, but he was able to close it down, which showed that there was something there. And so the changes that Yamaha have made has certainly been a benefit. You can see Valentino's performance on the harder tire, Maverick was on the soft tire, and they were right there. Yeah, and that shows versatility. I mean, exactly. that's, that's what you want. That way, the rider then can have more of an impact. And talking about that it's not, yeah, how we're not like Formula One, is bikes, and it's why that people love watching it is visually the rider can make such a difference 
in the lines, the angle, the lean angle of the bike, and you can see that and make adjustments. And, and from a rider standpoint, all you want is, is to have a bike that if you do choose that soft tire and you manage it well, it'll be a benefit at the end. If you do choose that hard tire like Valentino, you, you know, you can maintain a certain pace and you're still there. And it was almost so like a whole new race for, for the was. Yamaha guys because really they, knew, they knew they'd made this big step forward. But, you know, your only way you're going to find out whether it actually really worked is in a race situation. Right, so they were right. both going. And yeah. who knows, Valentino thought, well, you know, you, you know, you, nowadays you never really, if you can get in the lead in a MotoGP race, you don't not take that chance because yes. overtaking is incredibly difficult. Yes. And so if you can get into the lead and stay there, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And um, who knows, he, he might have thought with this new electronic setup, it might actually look after the tire and yes. I might be able to, just stay here the whole time and he um, may be thinking know. that he could have pushed harder yeah you yeah, know exactly, that was the exactly. thing too now you know and and like i said that was the same thing with i believe in maverick's case too so they've obviously moved in that direction that they've they've kind of gone over that hump a little bit and and that that's going to throw a whole new you know level of interest obviously in these last I five mean, races they're going to be Yamaha. spending the whole time from now to Mizano thinking about how they can take the next little step mm -hmm. Like you say, with the electronics, you, you can't just keep dialing it in in one direction because if you if you dial in too much traction control, you you take away too much torque and sure. you've got grip, but you've got no power, you know. So yeah, it's right. a real fine balancing act. But they will be talking, you know, maybe they can take one more little step with the traction control and maybe Valentino will be thinking he can change the way he rides mm -hmm. to look after that tire a bit more and so on. And, and the same with Maverick. So, mm. yeah, as you say, it, it it's... It's just suddenly Yamaha are back in the game. Yes, still leads the uh, constructors championship as well. It's still, well, I've got the points here. It's still seven points clear of Honda. I guess Marquez blowing up helps that. But sure. when I saw that, I was surprised to see the Yamaha that seemed to struggle so much recently. Still, We've probably had a little bit of help from Tech Three there yes. this year yes. as well. Yes. You know, sure yeah, Folger and, and Zarco yeah, both got know, like at, at uh, exactly in Le Mans yeah. and um, Saxon Ring. Yes, that they they got two seconds that they wouldn't sure. have had otherwise. You know. So is it a 2018 bike, do we think, at Silverstone for Yamaha, or was it...? I, 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 there was a couple of journalists saying that they were racing a 2018 prototype chassis. I don't think so. I don't Seems think so, early. maybe. I mean, it's, it's, it's so difficult to know everyone in the paddock. You know, if you're a journalist, you go up and ask yeah. Freddie Willem, you know, uh, had, had during his career, so what were you running there? You know, you're not going to tell them. Yeah. You know, you're not going to... And, and, the factories are much more secretive now than they were then. You know, everything's much more secretive. So who knows? They might have been. But, um, you know, the kind of changes they're making with these frames are tiny. Yeah, they're, they're I mean, such little tiny, things. Just yeah, a tiny bit of stiffness yeah. here or there. Yeah. You know, probably not even geometry. Just maybe adjusting a portion of swing arm stiffness. Maybe, you know, maybe changing from a, a two mil wall to mm. a one mil wall in that section of the swing arm. I mean, you know, you're talking about just to give the tire an easier time. You're just talking about tiny, tiny changes. And this is the thing, too, is that, and it was something Irv and I, Irv was kind of my crew chief, we, we would have the tire that we know worked. And then it was up to me as a rider to make my adjustments, and then we would do some setup adjustments. And it's the same thing with what we're talking about now, is, is the adjustments they're making is because of the characteristics of the tire they have to work with. And they, they're getting, obviously, you know, now it's a year and a half into Michelin being back involved, and so everybody's got a, a good idea of at least what that is. And the basic characteristics of how the tires 
feel and react or stay the same. Now, Michelin has broadened that window a little bit and probably certainly made it to where the tire works a little better across the board bike-wise. But still, the basic on-that-edge performance is the same, you know, the characteristic-wise. And that, that's where Yamaha has, has certainly made that jump. I think Honda hasn't struggled with too much. I think the Ducatis have been there. And, and we could, you know, we've talked about Ducati. One of the things that with, when they went back to the single electronics, they had a lot more experience, and I think that's certainly helped with them. The fact that we, we, they brought back the stiffer sidewall front, if you look at the performance in the races since then, exactly. it certainly has I helped think, the Ducatis, um, and I think that's um, you know, helped the guys who one of their strengths, in Dovey's case, is corner entry. Yeah, is, is it, in, in no way taking away the anything of what Dovizioso and Ducati have done. I mean, I think if, if, if the rules of the last two years have swung towards anyone, they probably swung towards Absolutely Ducati. Absolutely, it has. The, yes. You know, basically the Magneti software that they run, the control software, is kind of what Ducati were running probably three, four years exactly. ago. Exactly. So, so they, they straight away know how to work the software. Um, you know, Honda never been near a Magneti kit in their lives, and, and they've got to start from zero. So that's why they kind of struggled for the first half of last year. Um, and as you say, the, if, if we look at the r races here, the, the, if you remember the riders voted to bring back the stiffer construction yes. front that they'd used at Valencia for the first time last year. They voted for that at Le Mans and Ducati won the next race. It's first race of the year, it won the next race and then the last two. So since they went to the stiffer construction front, I'm sure there's other factors here. Yes. But since they went to the stiffer construction front, Ducati have won four of the last seven races. So why, why would Lorenzo vote against? If it's so good for Ducati, why would Lorenzo vote against that tyre? He, he, he likes a, a huge amount of feel and so yes. on. And, and, you know, I mean, he at that stage, he was still just in his kind of infancy with the Ducati, really. And I think now, I mean, he's very much worth talking about at this moment because he you know, not a lot of people noticed it, but at the weekend, okay, he finished sixth, so, was it sixth? Um, so no one really noticed. Fifth or sixth. Yeah. Um, but he was only no three one, and a half seconds. he was three and a half yeah, seconds yeah, exactly. behind the winner. I mean, you know, the race before he was fourth, and everybody was like, wow, he's fourth, but he was six seconds behind the winner. If you're a rider, unless you're winning, the position, or you're on the podium, the position doesn't really matter. It's the distance to the front. Yeah. That's you come in and you finish sixth and you're 20 seconds behind the winner, yep. you're, you're not happy. You come in and you finish sixth or seventh, let's say, and you finish four seconds behind the winner, you're like, right, we're yes. in the game here. You know? and, and it's consistent. You know, he's working toward race pace. I mean, that's everything for him. I think it, it's so interesting when you look at the dynamic of that team it is I think in, you know, Dovey's case, the changes we've seen with him this year you know, everybody's talked about, and it's true, you know, he won in 09 and seven years before he won his, his second race and then went seven months till he won his third. And now he's won four this year. I think Jorge coming into the team, certainly the spotlight is on Jorge. The expectation is that's why he's being brought in. I think also there's been that confirmation of certain things and things that the Ducati need to improve. There seems to be a little symbiosis there with, with Jorge and Dovi as far as very similar about the direction the bike needs to go and, and things they're working on. And, and, his, and his mindset, I think the fact of 
if nothing else, he knows he can win a race. He knows he can compete for the championship. And from a rider's standpoint, that frees up so much of what you, your performance. Because you're going out there and you expect to be there. And if you are there, your focus is just on what you need to do. And that's what you see. And his, I mean, if he, he got off the other day, he doesn't get stressed about it. He works his way up and then he makes the right decision at the right time. And, and in, in many ways makes it look kind of easy. And, he's, and a, he's a real thinker. Yeah, and Divizio, that's so. exactly. And I think that's why I do put a lot of stock and a lot of emphasis on, on where his change in his whole way that he's thinking about things. Because when you are a person that's analytical in that respect, and he is, that makes a huge difference on, on where, that, where your energy goes to and what you focus on. And, uh, and, and I see that in his performance. I see that in his writing. And, and, and obviously there's, there's the other aspect of, of he's been there with the Ducati and he's, they've made the changes so he has a lot of confidence in, in what he needs to do to make the Ducati work for him, you know. Um, you see the opposite of that with Jorge. You know, Jorge gets out front. He's always been a little bit like that anyway. We're kind of like Danny in a way in, in that when he's on, he's on, you know, and he's very difficult to beat. But, you know, Jorge also is obviously very good at battling. You know, he, he can, if when he's comfortable on the bike and when he's confident, as he said himself, when he's confident, he can do great things on a motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Divizioso, yeah, he's been getting that confidence, building it, building it, building it. And now, you know, if, if you look at the crash statistics from the last 10 years in MotoGP, I mean, hardly anyone crashes less than Divizioso. He, yeah. he, he's one of those riders who, who n he feels the limit, and that's as far as he's going to go. He's not going to fall off trying to finish fourth instead of fifth, you know, and, and, and possibly hurt himself. So, you know, and that, and that, you know, you're not bashing up bites. You're not bashing yourself up. So, you know, that's a much better way yeah. of, um, of making progress, you know, thinking about it. And he's always been like that. And, and I guess now that the championship is there, he probably is prepared. You know, every rider is prepared to take a risk to finish first instead of second. Not so many are prepared to take a risk to finish sixth instead of seventh, you know. So he's he's in that position now where, so it, there's more fight coming out of him sure. now, as, as as well as his skills. So it's a kind of um, yeah, it's just a fascinating period. I, I, I mean, I've been here for 30 years, and you know, I used to love what I call the age of the superheroes when you were there, and it, when it was all the Americans and the and the uh, Australians was a fantastic period. Um, we've had some great years, but I mean, at the moment, wow. I, I really don't think there's ever been a better time, certainly when I've been around, you know. Mm. If if Davizioso does win it, the title, where does he fit in the echelons of the sport? Do you consider him alongside the Rossi's Marquez? Or is he making the most of a good bike? Yeah, I I, I think when you start, I, yeah, when you start <laughs> putting people in categories, I've always said that, you know, great riders from, different generations can ride in any any era yeah that's one the other thing is his impact you know and and what what a person does at a certain time i think in dovey's case you know he's a guy who's been around a long time i i consider him very workmanlike you know where he's really he utilizes the most of what he can do and he's and he's hung in there and he's kept plugging along and he's grown and matured into this position that he's in and I don't mean mature as far as that he was that he was immature, but in experience, mindset, 
expectation, self-expectation, belief that that's where you should be. You know, the biggest thing that, that a lot of people may not or probably don't realize is there's a lot of riders who get to the world championship but actually don't believe that they should be there. You know, it's, it's they, they get there and they, they're, they're great. They could be great riders and they're very good riders and, and their, their main limitation is, is themselves. And that's why I say what I see in Dovey is that change of that he doesn't expect that somebody else is going to win the race, that he can win the race. And that is such a huge thing where you, you feel you need to belong. I always say that when I look back and experience and wisdom comes from, you know, experience. But I look back and I remember the first time I raced here outside of the United States and I got asked a question by Dale Singleton. I was 18 at the match races and I was walking on the tunnel and he said, you nervous? And I said, no, that's where I want to be. And that mindset right there was the difference of why I won that day at Brands Hatch. Obviously, all the other things. But from my contribution to my own performance was that. And that's, that is a huge factor in, in I, what I see in Dovey's. And in, you could almost see in Jorge's a little bit the other way of yeah. his lack of belief in that. Yeah that he can finish the job at this yeah, moment. Yeah. You know? my, my favorite uh, moment of the year so far was the last corner at Red Bull Ring where, mm. where Mark you know, did what Mark does. He was gonna mm -hmm. win by any means necessary. And, and Davizio said he kind of knew he was there. He mm -hmm. could hear him and he knew what was gonna happen. Yeah. So he, <laughs> so, so he went out wide and, and let him go mm -hmm. because there was no way he was gonna stop for the last corner. So, so and many other riders, I mean, if you think back to uh, Jerez 2013, last corner when Mark overtook Jorge. Um, I can't remember who, who won the race. Was it Pedroza or someone? I can't even remember. But the, the big battle was for second. And uh, Mark went up the inside, and he was right there, and Jorge closed down on him. And they collided. Jorge, being on the outside, went wobbling off into the, towards the gravel, and, and Mark got second place. Mm -hmm. Now... That's a big ego thing to me. Jorge, you know, he's, he's like you say, he's got quite a fragile ego. So he wasn't going to let Dovi, Marquez by. Davizioso, mm -hmm. who's, they've all got egos, of course they have. Sure. But he he's thinks mm -hmm. bigger than his ego. So he was like, well, I know if I close down on Mark here, what's going to happen? He's going to, we're going to collide. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the outside, so I'm going to get pushed out. And Mark will just accelerate towards the finish line and win the race. So he, you know, I mean, that, and that's a split second thing. He's it gone, sure right, it is. I'm lifting up, Mark goes sailing through wide, and, th and then Dovi cuts through and wins the race. You know, yeah. I, I just thought that was most other riders, because we, we live in a very physical gladiator kind of age of MotoGP where they're all bouncing off each other. Most other riders at that moment would have gone, no, Mark, you're not going to have this bang, and yeah, actually, fight, given, fight and actually given him the race. Yeah, exactly, and fight for the position. Yeah, what he did, and, and Mark, obviously, the mistake that Mark made, actually, was trying to pat, he drove off the corner that by the time he dropped back, and when that, once I saw that, I realized there was no way he was going to make, being able to get back to the inside and carry enough speed, because all you want to do is just block Dovey's turn in, and yeah. that was the mistake that yeah. Mark made. He was just sure. a little, obviously, yeah. Yeah. and you, like you said, Mark, Mark he, he was pushing. But Dovey, though, you're right. I mean, he, that was a decision that is completely free mm -hmm. of yep. anything other than yeah. knowing exactly what the other guy's going to do and yeah. going, 
and outsmarting. Yeah. And, and that is clever. Yeah. You know, and that's, that, is, that is a difference that's always been there, obviously, with Dolby, but that he's realizing about himself and he's utilizing that ability he has to be able to see that happening and, and executing it, you know, because it's all about executing it, you know. Uh, there's a question here on Marquez, actually, on his blow-up uh, from John Seymour. Could uh, Mark's engine blow-up have been a result of his, of his various crashes um, at Silverstone and before? So the, it was a fresh engine, um, and he wasn't quite sure. No, I think it was the engine. He wasn't quite sure whether it was the engine that he crashed with on Saturday. Right. But he'd used that engine ever since then. So it seems unlikely. Yeah. I mean, you know, these things are doing, what are they doing? 18,000, whatever, you know, obviously they're bore limited. They don't rev as high as they used to because, you know, the, the, the rules keep the revs down. Um, but you know they're they're engines. Engines break now and again. I mean, yep. I would my own guess would be that it was a valve. I don't know. It's imp- yeah, I'm sure it's I'm sure they wouldn't even have opened it. Yeah, there. obviously, obviously they would have just stuck it in a crate and, and sent it home. Hey, obviously it wasn't like the, it wasn't electronics. It wasn't an electrical problem because you saw the smoke. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's you know. a, that, yeah. I, I blown it blew blew the NR500 up one time. It's electrical. Uh, with all that oil that was on my boot, I'm not sure. If can, but anyway. So obviously it was it was in, internal, but t- that's the thing you just never know. You know, it's a good question because if the bike crashes and it sucks in something into the, but the thing is they that's all protected so well. Yep. You know, nowadays certainly much more than it used to be. Um, you know, if it may be rev, but they have rev limiters on them. So even if yeah. something like that does happen, so more than likely not. It's just, you, like you said, you never know. But because we don't see it that often anymore, it's a shock when you do. Yeah. You just yeah. normally don't see yeah. that in a race anymore. I, I, I'm probably what, I mean, I'm sh- it looked like it was a kind of terminal thing. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, obviously. almost certainly they would have sent, because obviously the engines are sealed, they're not allowed to open the engines. But what they do they'll send it back to HRC and they'll use kind of, you know, scopes and so on um, and look inside the engine. Because I know a couple of times in the last few years, during the engine rationing era, you know, they've gone inside an engine and actually been able to fix it without without opening it, you know, actually wow. found, found some piece that's got in there or whatever and, yeah. and actually the engine's okay. But <laughs> to me, that looked like it was a Orthosc- It's orthoscopic. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I suppose we should have a quick word on Suzuki, winners 12 months ago, and uh, basically nowhere now. Is that Vinales' effect? Well, the, the rider has a huge effect on that. I think we're seeing the bike, obviously Renz did pretty well, you know, in the race he finished, what, ninth. Um, the bike is, is, I think, better than the performance that we're seeing. Anoni, I mean, Anoni obviously has ability what he can do and this is the thing is that if he can do one lap which he does every once in a while puts in an amazing lap in qualifying and maybe even in the race but then his consistency is the problem he's obviously extremely emotional and and he he doesn't have and that internal ability in his own you know to be able to to manage that and he you know like what he did on sunday the mistake he you know, made and um, it's it's certainly disappointing, obviously for Suzuki. I think you know, being obviously they're one of the main manufacturers, but they really need to have a good performance every once in a while, and they they need to show better than that, um, b- so that they can maintain their position and being able to stay in in the sport. So it's 
it's really they need to get they need to get someone that uh, a rider that is more consistently quick you know I, I mean it's common sense but also I think that can help them moving forward there seems to be some th of that they made a, in that I've written about this in blogs before I think they made a huge mistake in their rider crew chief selection and and Aprilia have done the same thing to me you never if you've got two riders you don't get you don't change both at the same time you know you need you know yeah. unless there's a really good reason to you need one rider you need a cont continuity so he can say well we yeah well that was quite good last year yeah. and you know da -da -da -da, this doesn't you know so you've got that continuity and you bring in some new guy that's going to be faster hopefully uh, Suzuki they um, they sacked both they got rid of well they lost one and they got rid of the other rider they hired a rookie which nothing wrong with that but on the other side of the garage they got a new rider from Ducati and a new crew chief from Ducati so you've completely you know, you've yeah. got a rookie on one side of the garage who, who, who's there just to learn. He's not going to be giving a lot of feedback to start off with. Um, and, and, and then on the other side, you, you, you've got a, a kind of crazy wild rider who's known for that. And you've got his Ducati crew chief. And they're coming from a bike that is completely different. Yes. You know, you and, could and not, maybe you know, they're not, probably, yes. you know, Characteristic-wise, yeah, it wouldn't they, be the they same. They are the kind right. of opposites. So, right. so you've got, okay, bring in Ian, bring in Ianoni. Keep him with the crew chief from last year, who knows what works and what doesn't, and, and, and actually can, you know, Ian only probably needs to be told. Yes. You know, because obviously he's a very fiery character. Would you he like needs to somebody, him? he needs a tough crew chief who can say, no, Andrea, you know, I know that's what you want to do, but I know that this is what works, and I want you to go out and try that, and if that doesn't work, we'll give your go, your go away. But, you, you, um, and take a brave man to do that, I think, though. Sorry? <laughs> It'd take a brave man to tell Ian well, yeah, to, yeah. I mean, I, to I, do something. I, I very much enjoy going to his debriefs. You know, all the riders do um, press media debriefs at the end of each day. <laughs> and, and going to see Ianoni is kind of like... Um, uh, I was about to say the, the Italian M-word, but I won't. It's kind of <laughs> like going in, you know... And he just fits, fixes you with his eyes and just... It's like having a sit down with a gangster, basically, <laughs> you know, and, and you're kind of asking him questions and he just, you know, he's just killing you with his eyes. And, and I, I actually kind of struggle not to burst out laughing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. it, it, he puts on such a performance. I really enjoy it, you know, I, and, and another reason why I think we're so lucky with MotoGP at the moment. Man, we've got such a fantastic combination of characters. You know, you've got just a mark for who for whom everything is just hilarious, you know. Yeah. Like uh, in Austria, you know, he was talking about in the post race, in the press conference, talking about touching Davizio's rear tire at 300 k's, you know, yeah. and what, laughing hysterically while doing it. And Davizio's are just going, yeah, like, like that at the same time. And, and, and you've got an Ianoni, you've got Crutchlow, you've got, you know, they're all different. Yeah, I just think we're so lucky. And I think that's one of the good things about bikes that there's less money involved. You know, it's not quite as corporate as cars, so characters are allowed to be themselves. You know, it's not the same as it was 20 years ago, but, you know, they're still pretty much themselves, I think. And Noni, what, what Matt just said is exactly what you see on the racetrack, though. And it's great to have passion. I mean, our sport is driven by that. You know, we, it's, it's, what, it's one reason why we love doing it. It's why I still love doing it after all these years and the events that I do and, and to share that with people. But on a Sunday afternoon, 
you have to manage that. And that is the problem that you see with him, is that passion is, he puts in that incredible lap, which shows that he can do it and the bike can do it. But because it's so emotion-driven, he doesn't know how to separate the two. And then, then you get into the blame thing of where, you know, it's, well, this, and I need this for the bike or this person and different things. And so it's, it, and it, that's, that's where it causes problems for the team because the team needs some kind of consistency and they need. Well, but they know, don't have any, do they? No, they've they got don't. And they to, need the rider. To fall yeah. Back on. yeah this to fall is the back thing. On. The rider depends on the team and the, the crew chief, the manufacturer, the team to, to get it to a certain point. And then the crew has to look toward that rider. You know, I always used to tell Irv on Saturday afternoon, tell me, let's get the bike as good as we can, and, and at that point, just tell me. Okay, then yeah. tomorrow afternoon at 2, it's up to me, you know, to make that adjustment. And, and that's, that's where the rider has to be able to, to kind of put that emotion aside and say, okay, this is what I need to do, and this is what we have to work with. And, and I just don't get that with Oni and, and um, where with other riders, you know, Mark, like you said, yes, and different things. But you, when it's time, he does exactly what he exactly. what he needs you know, to he's, do. He's probably the most aggressive rider out there. But wow, he knows how to control that. He knows you how know, to. He knows yeah. knows how to keep his aggression under control. And like you're saying, that's the the big. You know, they're all super aggressive. Of these course, guys. of I course. Mean, I, yeah. I remember at club racing, you know, everyone is basically trying to kill each other. That's at a club race. You know, so, so these guys are just on another level from the aggression point yeah. of view. Much, much more aggressive but, than we were, but, 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 have, but they've got the control. Of course. Inside, I, I, I can only speak for myself, inside, it's, it's incredibly calm, but unbelievably driven. You know, every single moment, every single gap, you know, as you know. And, and that's, that, that is the, the challenge, you know, and so... That, but, finish up on uh, with Andrea and Oni. That is what I see is, is what Suzuki sorely needs because they, they were there certainly with Maverick and, and they were moving in the right direction. But that's where Yamaha and Honda have been the, the class of the field for so many yeah, years. You, you always keep, you keep continuity with one yes. rider, you bring in another and then yes. and so on and, and so And their ability the, to be able to- have done the same. Yeah. You know, they brought in a rookie to develop yeah. a new bike. You know, that's a strange thing to do. Mm -hmm. And they brought in Espargaro who, you know, great rider and all that. But again, there's no continuity. There's, yeah. there's nothing that they can say, well, this worked with, you know, Alvaro's using this this year and he used that last year and we know that works. We know this doesn't work. You know, they're, they're, like Suzuki, they're very much at sea because they just yes. don't have that continuity or that... Not They've got the data, but that isn't everything. You need you need the rider or the crew chief who can say, I remember yeah. on that Friday night, on the Friday afternoon at Saxon Ring last year, we tried such and such a spring and such and such a damping and such and such a traction control setting and pluck it, you know. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, as, as you said, they have the data so they can compare. But what a rider has to be able to bring to it is the, the improvement. A rookie, there's nothing wrong with a rookie as long as that rookie has the ability to be able to feel changes and, and can push a bike because that's always a challenge when you're developing the bike. And that's, again, where Mark is so good and was that way f from the time he showed up in MotoGP and why that I, I like him is, is he was just right there, right from that very first thing. And, and he believed and he could push the bike and then, and then he could learn, you know, from there. But if a rookie has got that, if they're hesitant or tentative, 
and they need time to be able to learn, that can be an issue for them. And especially if the bike is not there, sure, which exactly. we and see and that and with the pre with the... And you've got no one to lead you. you exactly. Know, if if, if exactly. he had a, a, a rider that knew about the bike and been riding it for two, three years on the other side of the garage, it makes a huge he could difference. go and say, well, what about this? What right. about that? It makes a huge if difference. If he goes to Iannone, <laughs> exactly. know, it's not going to be getting a lot of help from Iannone for all kinds of reasons. But sure. um, yeah, well, I, I, I think it's, pre, such, yeah. it's such a yeah. sad thing because I think Suzuki have just done such a brilliant job with that bike. It's a superb piece of machinery. Yes. And they've done some very clever things with it, you know, carbon fiber engine hangers and stuff so they can play play with the stiffness of the, sh of the chassis in the way that the other teams can't so much. And um, it's a beautiful piece of kit. And uh, it's a real shame to see it kind of struggling. Yes, not I agree. And it's not the bike's fault. You know, it's, it's the... It's what they've done to the makeup of the team and uh, with the riders and crew chiefs and so on, you know. And so that's actually quite an easy job to fix, you know. But they don't seem to have done anything to fix it. You know? If you were if you were Cal Cal Crutchlow, would you look at Suzuki and think maybe there's an opportunity there to lead a team and as a fully factory backed rider, or would you not want to take that risk? I think I think in Cal's case, he likes the position he's in, um, and. He obviously feels comfortable now with his new deal with, with HRC um, because there's always that risk. And, and he, he probably know, you know, once if he would leave that, that place and you go to Suzuki and it doesn't go well, yeah. for someone in his position, that could really be a, a problem or very difficult to, to maybe get back, you know, where, where someone um, – let's say like Jorge, for example. Jorge, I mean, he's a multi-time world champion, obviously a huge amount of success, extremely consistent over many, many years. He struggles at Ducati. He can probably, that's different. That's a whole different position to be in. But it certainly is, you, you would know you, that it is, um, there is something very special about being a leader at a factory yep. team. And, and Suzuki, even though they haven't had the success, they have had success. They are all one of the major manufacturers, and, and, um, and they, you know, certainly S had some, the potential. Some riders, you know, Cal was with Ducati for a year. Some riders don't actually like being in a factory team in a way. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of it gets very corporate. There's a lot of pressure. Um, you know, you have to do what you're told. You have to say what you're told, blah, blah, blah. Cal, you know, he's, he's a bit of an animal. I know I say that in the best possible <laughs> way, you know. And he just does what he wants to do. No one is going to tell him what to do. And I think he much prefers being in a smaller setup where he can be who he is and without people saying, you know, do this, do that, do the other. And he's found a great setup there. It was a lovely little team, really good little team. And, you know, he's got an HRC contract now yeah, for two years. Yeah, he's got some responsibility. So, so he is actually, effectively yeah. a factory rider. Yeah. But, but without, yeah, he, he did not enjoy being a factory rider at Ducati. He yeah. found it really hard. He, he, it's kind of like putting a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. You know, I think he, he prefers to be somewhere where he can be a bit more indie, be yeah. his own guy. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Cal, well, they're all, they're all concerned about how much money they make. Of course they are. And, but I think he does pretty well where he is now. He's very good at the weekend as well. He's yeah, I think he, you know, he, he was right there. It was a real shame that he just couldn't quite put one on the guys in front of him. But, you know, the fact is he finished 1.6 seconds off the win. You know, work that out over 20 laps. What's the difference in lap time? So, so he was absolutely on the pace. Um, and, you know, he is a bit up and down. But 
I, I, I really like Cal. He, I mean, he was so, you see so many British guys over the years come to their home Grand Prix and they make such a big deal of it and they get all kind of worked up with the patriotism and everything and then bang, <laughs> nothing happens, you know? And Cal, you know, what do you want to do? What, as a fan, do you want to see a, a rider riding around in eighth place in Union Jack Leathers or, or do you want them battling for the podium? You know, I, to me, I would want to see them battling for the podium. And uh, I think he just gets on with it. He was so relaxed over the weekend. He's just amazing. You know? Yeah, he doesn't yeah. shrink from the, the spotlight. Yeah. And that is, that's the part that is, is, is one of his strongest attributes, is I believe he certainly gets the most out of his ability. You can see he works extremely hard on the motorcycle and he's he's right there and i agree i think the position he's in in the lcr team with the which is all he wanted more was just that direct backing from hrc and i think he likes the fact of of he gets to test the the, the equipment they ask him that's a responsibility that he's comfortable with you know every rider says i don't want to test all this and different things but but i think he does i really don't think he minds it you know i think he his input makes a difference. He obviously seems to get along well, and he talks well about Mark and, and that relationship, and he, and he sees the performance that Mark does. So I think it's, it's overall a good place. But what I like is, when I watch him, is that, is that like you said, you see so many times when it, the, the glare of the spotlight comes on the local rider in their home environment, and they kind of get they get hesitant and you can see they just mm. it's difficult because they're they're more afraid of losing than they are of 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 doing exactly, well exactly and and so he he was right there i mean if any guy made a mistake he would have won the race or whatever yeah. and and he gave a great performance and he, and he likes being in that position and like you said he adds that diversity and personality to, to yeah. the event is certainly, uh, I'm sure the you know Matt and the guys like it, and and, and everybody likes it. A it's lot of people don't yeah. really get, I guess, his British sense of humor. Right, I guess right, that right. you know people take what he says at kind of face value, which is you should never really, you know, yeah. most British people kind of take the mick out of each other all the time, and sure. and a lot of that is another thing that people don't get with Cal. He nearly always says, you know, if he nearly won the race or nearly got on the podium or nearly got pole, he always says. I could have done, I could have won that race. I could have been on pole, and people are like, oh, for God's sake, you know. Um, yeah, but you, you have know. to believe. But he just exactly, says exactly that is he. You yeah. know, there is a that. kind of a sort of a, an aspect of self delusion in racing. You know, you have to convince you have yourself to believe, that you sure. And, and and if you're saying, well, yeah, I didn't get pole. I wasn't fast enough, or you know, oh dear, I didn't get it again. You know, it's all about reinforcing that sense of self belief, saying, well, I could have done it. I could have done it. I nearly was. If only for that. You know, one mistake at turn three, I could have been on pole. You've got to keep telling yourself that stuff because if you don't believe it, it ain't going to happen. Yeah, and the thing is, he has won races. Exactly. So it's not like that it's, he's almost there and he's never been exactly. there and never has a chance. He does. He's, and, and, you know, he's been on pole. He was on what, a pole last, last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here. He was, you know, in, in right there this year. So the thing is, you know, that that's his personality. It's, I always used to say, people used to ask me about Eddie Lawson, and, and Eddie and I, the first three years we raced against each other, we probably said about ten words to each other. You know, Eddie didn't really talk that much. And he was driven, you could tell, by just kind of a little bit of that chip on his shoulder, just a little bit. And especially I was with Honda, and he was with Kawasaki and began Superbike days. And I only bring it up because I understood what motivated him. And that had nothing to do with the respect I had for Eddie, and I always have, and 
we today get along, you know, obviously we always got along, but we talk a lot when we see each other because you have more in common than you don't. But that is, that's what motivated him. And, and Cal's, Cal talks a lot. You can see in what he has to do to, to get the most out of his ability, and I think it's, it's great. And he brings that personality to it, and you see that, and I think it's a good thing. Seems like Brits in MotoGP, the future is kind of secure now. Dawn is involved with the British Talent Cup. Um, there's also a few questions about America, be it going the same way. We're so few Americans now in, in the top class. Um, one question here from Mr. Christensen saying, should there be more interaction between dirt and asphalt disciplines? Which obviously doesn't, Dawn can't really help there. But Dawn is doing a lot of work, both in the UK and America. Are they doing enough? Is it going to work? Well, this, this whole thing of where dirt bike riding and dirt tracking has been in, obviously influenced modern Grand Prix racing more than you can ever imagine. And timing is everything. If you look at that all started back in, in, in the United States, well, let's talk about the United States and their involvement in the 60s and 70s. And then the dramatic change in equipment and Grand Prix racing in the in the late 70s, but specifically in the early 80s when Honda got involved, chassis development, tire development, power of the two strokes, all kind of brought together that that when the Americans came over, it was first Kenny, Steve Baker, Kenny Roberts, Pat Hennon, Randy, myself, Eddie Lawson, Kevin, Wayne Rainey, all really matched up perfectly. And so what you have is is the the neck that increased the performance of the rider and the bike together to what you see in a Mark Marquez today, and you see and and that's helped Valentino. It helped many riders over the years. Wayne Gardner and I talked about you know he grew up riding in Wollongong you know off in the dirt and so and you saw that in his riding. That is the fundamental thing as far as is the relationship. The, the thing that it helps a lot is getting younger riders acquainted and passionate about riding a motorcycle. And I mean, I started, that's what gave me that passion, riding in the yard as a kid. I mean, that was fundamental and the foundation for everything that I did the rest of my life on a motorcycle. It also began with my, my brother and my dad and what we did together and riding in local events. and. And so that participation, that local community-driven motorcycle-related participation is the framework and the foundation to get younger riders involved. Now, there's different ways to do it. In the United States, that's the, where they're going to have to go. Dirt tracking has really come back in the United States, and I think we're going to see an influx, maybe not next year, it's going to be a few years. We'll start seeing some younger riders come up through the ranks if that if Motor America continues in its regrowth of American road racing and club level racing, but professional racing and given the opportunities for younger riders um, to grow. In Spain, we, we know that, we see that. They do that on, on little road bike, I mean little bitty bikes with young kids starting two, three, four years old. They have an ever racetrack in Spain. And again, that's, that's that local, opportunity to give young riders not only a chance to ride but these are very structured programs um, but to gain the experience and 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 also to learn the technique of how to ride a bike so there's there's different ways to do it uh, but obviously I, I 
grew up with the dirt bike, dirt tracking formula of teaching me bike control, teaching me uh, all the things, throttle control, and my interaction with the bike. And that's what was the true foundation of I think the, the, the big you know, thing really was gave us first the first the age the young yes. age that you started you know yeah. four back years in old your, for me in you know the 70s in Britain basically you started racing you know you got a moped when you were 16 decided yes. you like going fast bought a race but you know a sort of little road bike and went racing on it the year after whereas in the states so you were already 17 18 when you started whereas in the states yeah. you guys were starting when you were four or five r riding around dirt so a you had the age yes on your side and b and b you were riding on dirt so so you were learning things that we couldn't even believe in so when you know i remember watching you first time you came to brands in 1980 you know all these guys were coming over and we were just stood there going what you yeah. know uh, how do they how do they do that you know and yeah um, and obviously the Americans have, have lost that to it because the Europeans right. learned from it. And you go, I've been down to Lorenzo's dad's place in Spain and watched him training two three-year-olds, you know, and he's got a big tennis court and he's, they've, they've drawn circle into locking circle lines and all the kids do yes. is ride around, the, they're riding around on a, on a white line that wide hours yes <laughs> getting it's that precision, precision and that's why and Jorge rides the movement. like Absolutely. that, and, that yes. and, and then meanwhile Mark Marquez is going sideways around and that's why Mark Feed rides up, like yeah. that yeah. you know and, and so to me the Americans need to get back to that kid yes. thing and I know they are having kind of mini moto tracks at the, yes. at the Moto America thing but I, I was really sad that Moto America when it started that they didn't go back to the Grand National that they yes. didn't make it sort of eight road races and sort of eight or ten dirt tracks because most dirt tracking in the states is with single cylinders now isn't it i think well they that's what's come back and especially with harley davidson and indian indian stepping into the, right. the big bike the 750 class which was really the premier half yeah. mile mile championship for decades and and that kind of waned a little bit and and road racing supercross yeah. became and, and yeah. professional MA road race became the big thing. And dirt tracking kind of went by the wayside a little bit. There's many reasons for that. C local communities, sound problems. A lot of the loss of the state fairgrounds, which a lot of the half miles and miles were raced on, like you saw on any Sunday. But that's come back a little bit. We're, we're starting to see a rebirth of that. And some of these old grand venues have kind of come back into the this, uh, championship again. But I agree with that is, is you know, the loss of that type championship and something for younger riders to, you know, I, I think one of the things that we saw a lot of younger talented riders in, in the United States, they had a choice. They'd want to go be a Ricky Carmichael, Jeremy McGrath and race Supercross. It's on TV, racing stadiums, the money's good, all these things. So they, they move into that. Also, one thing that didn't disappear was local motocross tracks in basically most areas and that's why it's it's it all comes back to that that in motorcycling it's the what you see in your area yeah, you've got to have ease ease of access Abs basi absolutely basically and and i can't emphasize that enough it's one of the things that we see uh, you know th that's one reason why the growth of all the classic things that we see is they're very local community driven we see a lot of young people coming and they're getting exposed to it and that's going to be the difference one, the other is, is opportunity, you know, to not only expose that, but where can they go with the, the championship? Where can they go mm -hmm. with, with the next step? I, I, I see, uh, I'm, I'm not a great fan of electric bike racing, but um, 
I see that as a way forward because, as you were just saying, and all f same here in Britain, many, many motocross tracks and so on are having to close down because, you know, towns are getting bigger, the urban spread and so on. So either they're being bought up and turned into housing estates, these motocross tracks, whatever, or the new housing estate half a mile away is saying, hey, you know, we don't like the noise and they're having to yes. shut down. And that's the one, that's the big positive to me for electric engines, you right. know, you can have little mini bikes, the electric, you know, mo motors, um, and, and you can race them anywhere because they don't make any noise. Yes. Except the screams when they crash probably. <laughs> you know, the, the, so that to me is possibly a little bit of a hope for the future that, um, that you can start having racing again in kind of urban or semi-urban areas, you know, yes. around dirt tracks or whatever. It's, it's got to be dirt track, isn't it? Because it's cheaper, it's safer. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to lay out a mini motor track is quite expensive. Go-kart track or whatever, t to lay out a little dirt track doesn't cost a lot of money. No. You know, you just need a little bit of, you know, it costs pretty much nothing, really, you know. Yes. Uh, we should probably get on to the readers' questions. There were quite a few yeah. aimed at you, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, uh... Peter Spires has asked if, when you look at the riders today, does it bring a shiver to your spine comparing the ultra-armoured items today to what you used to wear on a bike on circuits? Yeah, when, well, that's the, just the evolution of things, you know. Uh, the simplest answer to that would be is that back then we didn't know any difference. So, yeah. you know, you, you, the protection that came along in my era would have been the first back protector. Uh, the increase of just having a little bit of thin foam to use the for you know Kevlar uh, on my knees and and elbows, um, because of the crash I had in '84 at Kailami with my my feet when the wheel exploded, and the CD boots you know the protection that came after that was um, better protection in the boots more more stability and so today when you look at what they what they're able to wear and Mark's crash at at Magello a couple of years ago uh, in 14 at over 200 miles an hour in the air suits I think is wonderful actually and 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 the other thing too is the safety aspect of the tracks it's a wonderful thing I guess uh, that leads quite nicely to Lindsay's question who's asked if uh, Rossi 38 years old how long can he keep going I guess the technology's ha helped him have such a long career yeah is this his last chance? I say um, every year, but I think you know that's been said so many times over the last couple of years. You know, I think for Valentino, I saw him at Mugello, um at the end of thirteen, and he had that had his race win at Assen, and I think that was such an important event for him to come back and, and win a race after those two years. So. Now every event that he does well in is a is a certainly a a positive thing, and um, can he do it this year? Or I know you had a column online this week, Matt, saying maybe hedging your bets a little bit, but can he do it? <laughs> it's it's um, I think it's the three T's really. You know, they all the top guys have got bikes that are good enough, and they're all good enough riders to win the title. Divizioso, Rossi. Uh, Vinales and Marquez, all of them. The bikes are great, the riders are great. It all, to me, it comes down to the three t T's, tires, tracks, and temperature. You know, it's all, it's so finely balanced that, you know, it's gonna come down to, yeah, the, the tracks, who works, which bikes work better at the last six tracks, who gets the tires right, that's the really 
essential thing and the temp the track temperature which is involved in the tire choice so i yeah i think it could go either way and three of the last six races are, are, are anti-clockwise tracks left hand left tracks and we all know how mark because of his dirt track background going left he loves you know he's pretty much unbeatable at left-hand tracks generally you know you look at him at uh, austin you look at him at uh, saxon ring he, where he's just unbeatable so that could be quite crucial with, with the, le the left-hand tracks uh what are we aragon um Phillip Island down Valencia. Those are the left-hand tracks. So that's no answer whether he can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I would say Divizioso or Marquez. But, you know, with this resurgence of Yamaha, I, I, I have... Exactly, I really that's the thing. I have that's no idea. Unknown. And I actually, exactly. that's w I actually don't want to know. Who wins. <laughs> I, I don't even want to think about who's going to win. I just want to enjoy every race. And, you know, I, m the way my support for each rider, it changes every race. It'll change even during a race. You know, I'll start off wanting so-and-so to win the race and halfway <laughs> through I want so-and-so because I just think, well, he's, the way he's riding, he deserves to win, you know. Yeah. To me, that's how you should support. You should support whoever's doing the best job, not, you know, I... Yeah. Yeah. So you're not putting your money on anyone right now? Well, uh, again, it's, it's the unpredictability that we've seen this year and we've seen particular bikes maybe work in better conditions, but you have to look at what bike seems to be working overall and the rider making the right choices and right now just Dovey that's doing that um, I think the unknown is certainly with Mark and, and Maverick you know I, I still I'd kind of pick them to finish first and second in the championship this year you know thinking but uh, it's it's just going to be on and I think weather conditions I think it's going to play a huge factor into that there's so many guys as we see of that can have a chance of winning the race or getting on the podium so you can as we've seen you can be 1.6 seconds back and off the podium so that's going to be you know, the championship is too close to call I think um, obviously journalists keep up you know in post-race press conferences post-qualifying press conferences uh, media debriefs everybody's you know <laughs> they ask Valentino must get asked, asked 15 times a weekend can you win the championship you know and and, uh, and he said on uh, kind of just on Sunday afternoon he said what I really want is you know and he was obviously just having a laugh at everyone's expense but but he was quite subtle about it which was funny he said what I want to, what I want to happen is us all to arrive at Valencia um, all equal on points <laughs> Yeah. and then have two days of perfect dry practice and then it's a rain on the race day. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and obviously that's not what he wants, but he's, that's just, he's so fed up with people saying, can you win the championship? Sure. Um, you know, the, I just thought that was a very funny answer. You know. So still no. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, 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 a, I don't know. No one knows. And B, I don't want to. Yeah. You know, that's, to me, that's the whole beauty of it. That I, I don't know. More questions? This uh, similar one from Nick uh, from Spain and Jazz and Bikes, uh, who asked how much percent is of ability, speed, and intelligence comes from being gift gifted talent, and how much is is it from training? Do you think? Well, I've always been a believer that you have to have a, to get to the very elite level. Obviously, ability, you know, but when it converges to be the best it can be is when you have ability drive and determinations and work ethic and your and the ability to learn to adapt to as you say a perfect example of what doby did where you, the ego gets put aside and your judgment and your and, and that cleverness comes into effect so when, when you have a rider that can can put all those things together 
you have about the perfect combination of being able to do it. I think the limitation of ability, because you can have someone that has the work ethic and desire, but is but will get to a certain point and they're limited in their ability. There's been writers, you know, Nicky always said one of the things that made Nicky what he was was his work ethic. He got the most out of his ability without question. And I saw that years ago when he first signed with with Honda, American Honda, and it's why I loved working with him, you know, and I miss the guy. And, and he was such a, an he'd come to my school in Las Vegas, and I would say, Nikki, I wanted to work on just the last 3% of trail breaking for 30 laps. He'd work on it for 130 laps and, and through three tanks of fuel. And it was an, a wonderful thing uh, that he would do, and, and that work ethic benefited him. So it's a combination of it. But when you have ability and that work ethic and the desire to do it and the intelligence to work it, put it all together, it's amazing. I think that probably answers Kevin's question as who would be your ideal teammate in the modern era. I guess that would be Nikki. Yeah, well, yes. And, and you, when, when you look at teammates, uh, you want someone that you can work with that is willing to work with you and then and actually that has a similar style especially if you're developing a bike you know I think that's one of the things that needs to be there is that style uh, comparable to be able to get the bike moving in the right direction for everyone and then similarly from Sergio Garcia Fernandez who do you like most in the current championship as a rider well that that's kind of a you know, I, I certainly, I like, I like Valentino. I like what, everything he's done, his contribution to the sport, different things, all of that. I like riders for different reasons. I probably have, you know, style-wise, it's, in, style it's interesting, but probably more like a Jorge. My style was a little bit, but my determination is a little bit like Mark's, you know. And, and I respect Mark for what he's done. He, he obviously rides HRC and Honda. There's that connection. But, but really, it's the way that he, he came to the championship and raised the level. I think he, he's done such a great job in pushing even Jorge and Valentino to raise their level of performance. And, and he kind of sets the standard that. And he's willing to go out there and, and put it all on the line and, and, and do, do what he can. And, and he puts on a great show. So I, I have to say in many ways, you know, Mark in that respect because of the heritage and, and the fact that, yeah, obviously he broke my record as the youngest world champion. There's all of that. But I, I would have to say probably Mark. I guess we'll end on your memories of uh, the British Grand Prix. Because um, Jose Sanchez yeah. asked about Donington 1987. Yes, he that was the last time yeah, I actually won a, or led a, not won by any means, but I led a, led a Grand Prix. My, my fond memory of the, wor well, the worst conditions I ever raced in actually was the 85 British Grand Prix. Um, and it was the race that I, I wrapped up the 250 championship that day, riding the worst race I, I rode all year, the wor worst strategy. I went out, I only needed to finish fourth, and I rode that way, and I barely finished fourth because Alan Carter crashed on the last lap while leading, and he would, British rider, he would have won the race, but it, it, it allowed me, I finished fourth. The best race, that was the, what I did in the 500 race. On fourth lap, I think I had an 18-second lead, and I had the benefit in those. It was just atrocious conditions. The wind and the rain was so hard that it was blowing in sideways. My helmet leaning on the hangar straight. But it was, a, you know, that would have to say my... And that was on the, well, the, the first... 
right way up NSR 500, which yes. wasn't an easy machine. No, it was an easy dry. bike. No, <laughs> and and Wayne Gardner and Randy and Ron Haslam all had the V4 that weekend, and they really struggled with it, you know. And yeah, exactly. In those conditions, obviously, we hadn't we didn't have traction control then either, you know. But um, I mean, it was what it was, and and you worked with it and worked around it. But I, that's my main memory, and it's so fascinating. I I had people come up to me all the time, and they remember like it was yesterday. They go, yeah. You know, I was in this corner, and, and they watch you, and, and it's obviously it's very cool. And good memories of Barry Sheen from the early Yes. Days. Probably my, my worst memory at the British Grand Prix would be the 82 race because Barry, in 82, really had a chance, and obviously that was, was going to be his last chance to to not only win races but win, win the championship. And, and he got the V4, the Yamaha V4, for that, that for the British Grand Prix in '82, there were three races left, and um, in the championship, I believe, and and he was the only one who still had a chance of beating Franco. He got the V4 and he changed the the frame. He had moved the steering column back anyway, and he got it more stable. And I remember we were in practice it was on wednesday we used to have free practice on wednesday back in those days and and they would let other uh displacements run it was the last time they did that two bikes collided and barry came up over the rise going into woodcott and hit a bike and crashed that lap he had passed me i happened to pull in i was right behind him and i told irv I didn't know he crashed i told Irv, i said barry's gonna be unbeatable this weekend but in that instant you know it he had the crash, and that basically was the end for him. Uh, he raced a couple more seasons, but that would that would probably be my worst. Mer- I like I thought the world of Barry. Barry, from the moment I showed up, Barry was was such a leader in our sport, and he was so welcoming to me and, and inspirational. And he he really taught me how to interact with fans too. A lot of people, Barry was a showman, but he really respected and appreciated the fans. That's why he was so loved. You know, he was the kind of prototype Rossi, wasn't he? Really, yeah. you know, I mean. Sheen and Rossi are the only two bike racers who've really crossed over into Trent the mainstream. Sand, yeah, and Barry did you that know, so well. Both of them, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of rock stars, both yeah, of them, absolutely. as much as they are motorbike racers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're the only two ever, I, I think, that have actually made that, you know, that jump. Yes. You know. Yeah. Uh, just to answer Jose Sanchez's question, he'll always want to know, if not, uh, why did you retire in 87 at, at Donington? Well, we had seats on one, one cylinder. So there you go. I think that's all we have time for today, I believe. Um, thank you both for joining us. Uh, keep an eye on the Motorsport Magazine website for Freddie's uh, post-race blogs and, of course, Matt's um, excellent analysis and everything. So um, we'll be back soon, hopefully, with some more special guests. There's a couple good guests lined up, uh, so we'll see you then. <laughs>